The gospel reading is from Matthew, chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be back with you. I was off preaching, uh, off of preaching the last couple of weeks, thanks to Richard White, and I hope you guys benefited from him being here. I sure did, just having some time away, and so I was on vacation a good part of last week, which made sermon writing an interesting affair, which I completed this morning. So we'll see how, the, how this goes, but I'm really excited to be back in the pulpit. And this psalm, although it's not quite mathematically in the middle, it really is sort of a bridge between two packets of psalms in the Psalms of Ascent. It's sort of a hinge between what came before the Psalms of Ascent that talk about life in a hostile land, how to survive in the world that we live in that is often disruptive and disorienting. And moving to a life that is lived in the ordinary uh, days of our lives, and the ordinary things, the mundane of life. And this is sort of the bridge between them. And it reads sort of like proverbial wisdom, like the Proverbs, unless God builds the house or the city, it will be in vain. Conventional wisdom, pretty straightforward, not really disputable. We're following you so far here, whoever's writing this. But then he says, and I'm saying he because it was likely a male that would write something like this, sons are a heritage from the Lord. Blessed or happy, that's what blessed means, is the man who has a quiver full of them. How many is a quiver? I'm not really sure. When you're talking about arrows in battle, it's probably not enough. But a quiver full of children is a lot. It is a lot. And I do have a lot of children. I have four. And I'm happy. I'm blessed. But it's largely because all of our kids can basically bathe and feed and clothe and, most importantly, wipe themselves. They have real conversations with me. We talk about movies, and we talk about relationships, we talk about cool things that you can't with an infant. They don't cry 18 hours a day, and Katie and I actually get to go to sleep. And I know I can see all of the forlorn looks of parents in the audience that have infants, and you're saying, shut up, don't be so mean. You'll get there. And... Having teenagers has challenges of a different kind. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's different. Now, we had Nicholas and Oliver 18 months apart. And here's a pro tip. Don't do that. 
because it's like having twins. Because if you take your eyes off them for more than 15 seconds, they can die. All of them, both of them. And really, they're not able to kind of play alone with themselves for, you know, three years. And so it's intense. Sometimes, you know, I was trying to be the modern father, and this was even in the early 2000s. I thought, I'm going to be the father that really participates. I'm going to be the husband that supports. And so Katie sometimes would leave me all alone with Nick and Oliver, both under 18 or 20 months, and she expected that they would be in working order when she got home from wherever she was going. And you see, there's no iPads then that we could hand them. We did have, however, VHS tapes, and we had many copies of a series called Baby Einstein. I'm sure no one here has heard of that, but this was about the time that everyone believed for about a month that kids listening to classical music would be smarter, that it would change their neurons and whatever. And so what these videos were, were videos of colorful toys and so forth, jumping around the screen, uh, playing and doing fun things, uh, set to classical music. And it was kind of like the xylophone classical music. It wasn't like grand Beethoven. It was just kind of annoying, tinny music. But when Katie would leave, I would set Oliver in one of those bouncy seats, you know, in front of the TV. And then I would put Nick in one of those, what do you call it, the saucer with all the toys. Uh, and they would watch Baby Einstein. And each of these episodes was 26 minutes. You know how I knew that? Because we watched them a lot, and I knew down to the minute when that time was going to be up. And they would be perfectly happy, perfectly content, watching Baby Einstein getting smarter every minute. And then I would hear the tape run out. No! Because in 26 minutes, you can almost fall asleep. And I would generally go lay on the couch because I was tired and exhausted. And then we would, they would get up and I would feed them or whatever. And then we'd do it all over again. And that's the blessedness. That's the happy life of being a mom or dad with a quiver full of children. That's only two. A quiver is probably a lot more. And the guy that wrote this psalm was probably happy because having five, six, seven children was no big deal to him. He got to do the fun part and then hand off the children. You see, he wasn't really involved in the ancient world. Dads were really not involved with the child care of their kids. They weren't interested so much. They bring them back to me when they can fight and hunt. That was kind of the dad's duty. Moms did all the work in childhood. And the dad got to bring these grown strapping men to court with him in case something went wrong. And that's basically what verse 5 is saying, is that the dad gets to bring this brood of boys to the court or to the city gates in case there's some static. And he's got these guys to back him up. So of course, of course, a man with a full quiver of children, of sons actually, is blessed. Now, 127, this psalm, which is in the middle, as I said, works as a pivot. And it moves between the hostile world to the world where we make a name for ourselves, where we build a legacy. 
And how did people do that in the ancient world? What was important to them? It was having children. It was having offspring. It was building a legacy for your name. And so the more the merrier as far as almost everyone was concerned. The point of life was essentially having children who were faithful to Yahweh. And it's why there's so many stories of barrenness in the Old Testament, because that was sort of the anti-life, the anti-story. If you couldn't have children, you couldn't make a name for yourself. You couldn't leave a legacy. You were, in a sense, cursed because you couldn't be a person of real consequence. That was how tied up identity was in children. The point of life was essentially to have a family in covenant with God. And as with anything else, we can see how quickly that can move from a posture of being blessed. That is, God has bestowed a blessing upon me. I've received something in my posterity, in my children. We can see how it can move from that to the posture of, look at my big, gigantic, beautiful family, right? Look at all these pretty people that I've made. Look at them standing behind me in the city gate. Don't mess with us. You can see how that transition could take place. And maybe you've seen the, the TLC show, 17 and counting, or 18 or 19. I'm not sure how many Duggars there are now. But there's a lot. Where do they get this idea? It's from this passage. It's called the Quiverful Movement. And the point is, basically, as it was in the Old Testament, to have as many children as you could possibly have because, one, they are a blessing from God, but there's also the little part about taking dominion over the earth by outbreeding the Muslims and the atheists. There's a little part about that, too, that becomes a little bit dominionist and oppressive and so forth. It's not really a good environment for women as well, but this is where... This comes from, to have a full quiver. Now, we're having a little bit of fun with the Duggar idea and their very literalistic read of this text. But don't we often get that idea from kind of a surface read of the Bible or from the church that if you're single, if you don't have children, that you're deficient in some way? that you're not as blessed by God as those with a family. This happens mostly in subtext. It happens mostly in subtle ways, which actually are the most powerful messaging that we can get. But guess who didn't have children? Anyone want to guess? Sunday school answer? Jesus, right? Jesus did not have any children, and yet apparently... He is the hinge of the whole Bible, of being faithful to Yahweh. He's the one that lives in this posture of receiving the blessings of God and then moving into the world to distribute blessings and to make all things new, and he did it without children. And so we have to read this passage just a little bit differently. The psalmist reminds us, however, that to those who've made it according to whatever standards 
our culture happens to uh, abide by or value, that we all inhabit and live by, or those who haven't made it yet and are trying to make it through finding a spouse, through finding a family, having a family, through getting the right diploma, through having the right transportation vehicle, having the right job, having the literal house, having the most followers on Instagram, whatever it might be, to those who have made it, to those who are trying to make it, according to the standards that we're living by, what verse 1 tells us, what Jesus' life tells us, is that unless God builds the house, that all of that labor is in vain. It's vanity. It's ephemeral. It's mist, as the word comes to mean in Ecclesiastes. This text, you see, is not really about children, per se. It's about living on purpose. It's about being a person of consequence. It's about exceeding our human boundaries and the limits of our lifespan with purpose, with meaning, with something eternal, with something valuable. And it all has to do with orienting our lives to God's created, creative work, His creative purposes. Now, as the Psalm 127 is the hinge of the Psalms of Ascent, that idea is really the hinge of the Bible, right? It is living according to a reality that is often unseen and always untangible. That the reality that you and I see can be misleading. That behind it, beyond it, between it, hidden in what we see is the deeper reality of God and His work. That He entered our history, that He entered our story. And that's the hinge of the Bible, that is the story of the Bible that God became incarnate into our world, and we are to live according to that incarnation. Not because we have to, not because God says, but because that's where joy is found. That's where we recover our humanity. That's where we find God's creative purposes alive in our own creativity. That the point of life, friends, is orienting ourselves to Him and to His redemptive work. And it's only in that way that our lives can exceed the boundaries that we inhabit. That we can actually pursue with some expectation of finding some of those, the most important things to us. Our longings, our yearnings, our desires for transcendence. The things that we sing psalms about, songs, the things that we read about in these psalms, these people marching in this arduous journey to Jerusalem, and yet joyful and singing because their journey is oriented toward God. They are taking this journey because they believe that He has spoken and He is gracious. And so, therefore, they write songs, they write poetry that talk about these longings, that talk about these yearnings, even when they're unmet. 
The point of life is in contrast to what many of us think and many of us grew, in, grew up in, is not to seek our own personal freedom as it's defined by this idea of human autonomy. So long as no one tells me what to do, that's what freedom is. But that there is a God of grace who delights in us and made us and that the point of life is finding life in him in a way that actually gives freedom. That binding ourselves to him is, the, is actual freedom. It's not the freedom that we imagine, but it's the freedom that we long for. A God of grace who intervened in the story of our world, who revealed himself in history in the person of Jesus, who is the hinge of the Bible, who is childless. He's the one who shows us what verse 2 tells us, that in vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. That is life with the dreams that humans dream and yet we find them unfulfilled. We find that some of the things that most motivate us get us up early and we go to bed late seeking and yet we never find them. That's what toil is. That's what mist is. That's what vanity is. It's understanding that we are made for something bigger than the reality that we see and yet not being able to get there. And yet we get up early and we go to bed late and do it all over again in the very same way that we did today. It is endless toil and it's exhausting. Yearnings that all of us have that apart from a relationship with God, walking upon the path that he has laid out that we will never find, that we will never find adequately at least, unless we know in our relationship with the one who gave us those desires. It talks about exhaustion, endless toil, because God is offering himself as the answer to that exhaustion. It says he grants what sleep. He grants rest to those he loves. How many of us in this room, I won't make you raise your, your hand, don't get enough sleep because you're working too much or you're doing too much or you go to bed and your mind is still churning. You're still thinking about the things that you didn't do or the things that you have to do. And so you stir instead of sleep. You wake up with anxious thoughts. I would suspect that almost everyone in this room has experienced that to some degree, at some point. And what God is saying is that that comes through the exhaustion of toil, of waking up early and going to bed late and not accomplishing the things that you most want out of life. That life is just full of tasks and objectives and emails that aren't connected to anything substantial and lasting. And so the gospel 
that God intervenes, the gospel that we're reading here in the Psalms is good news for tired, weary souls like you and like me. It's good news for our exhaustion and our sleepless, fitless nights, our fitless sleeps, sleepless nights, to put it in the right order. It's good news for the weary because He is the giver of rest. What does Jesus say? Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. All of you who are burdened, I will give you rest. Is that what you think about when you think about God? Is that your image if you're new to the church, if you're new to in town? Is that the image you walked in here thinking about of the church? Probably not. Because not only do we look like a very burdened people, but we burden others with our idiosyncrasies and our weird interpretive things. We're not a place of rest. We're not a place of refuge often. And we are some of the sleepless people because we have the added burden of doing all the Christian tasks. So we have added duties. We can't even attend to the so-called secular duties, but now we have Christian duties. And so we're tired. But the leading edge of Christianity should be that Jesus offers rest to weary souls to people who don't sleep very well. The archetypal story in the Old Testament of building things in vain or building something in vain is the the Tower of Babel, right? You know, the one where people get together, they use their communication skills, they use their imagination, they use their talent for design, For organization, they use building tools, they use human resources to build something. It sounds like a modern workplace. They make something really impressively tall that doesn't reach anywhere. It's impressive, it's functional, and it's pointless. It's a monument, like many of our buildings are, to the genius of human creativity, of humanity in general, but it's a trapped humanity. It's a bounded humanity. It's an earthbound humanity. There's a cosmic longing in this building that will never be met. There's a recognition that we want something from beyond to see us, to validate us, And yet we don't know who that is, and we don't know where that person might be or that thing. And that's what this building says. In our world, all of us are working hard. Sociologists tell us that we're the most busy nation in the most busy time of all of human history. We are working way too long and far too many hours doing things that maybe won't last Not stopping to ask, as we're moving, where are we going? What am I getting up for tomorrow? Jacques Ellul, the French Catholic philosopher, I printed this quote in the front of your bulletin. He says, the first great fact that emerges from our civilization is that today, everything has become means. There is no longer an end. 
We do not know whither we are going. We have forgotten our collective ends, and we possess great means. We set huge machines in motion in order to arrive nowhere. We live in a world that often, where often technology, achievement, buildings exist for themselves, and we don't stop long enough to ask why. The means become the ends, you see? And this is the enemy, friends, of real spirituality, making things, possessing things that don't fit into a life-giving, redemptive story. It's just us watching us. We're spectators in our own lives. Look at what I'm building. Look how creative I am. And not knowing where we're going. If Elul is right, if our civilization has lost its meaning, and I would lump most of the Christian church into that civilization. It's not the church watching the culture. It's that we share these same limitations. If he's right that it's lost its meaning, then one of the most important, one of the most potent things, he says, is simply to live. Life understood from the point of view of faith has extraordinary explosive force. And this is where we find rest. By the very fact that God shows up and is present in the very ordinary things of life, in the very mundane things that we do, that is one of the ways he gives rest. Because we don't have to imagine faithfulness as some extraordinary life that people write articles about that will be remembered. We can imagine a life of faithfulness that just goes about doing the mundane task of life, but with a purpose, but with a reason. And when we begin to do that, we'll notice our work taking on a different sort of complexion. We can begin to notice work actually as a sacrament. It's a place where we meet God, where we see Him present. Not in these big dramatic things, but in tiny things. This is what we do when we come to the sacrament, when we come to the Lord's table, because we look at a sip of wine, we look at bread, and we say, how could God be present in that? How ordinary, how mundane, how tiny. And yet it's there where his presence lives. Those elements are a thin space where heaven and earth meet. And your work, friends, even if you're trying to build a career and what you're doing right now seems so menial, or if you're doing making big decisions that have consequences for many people. In both of those situations, they can be a thin space where heaven and earth converge, where you can sense and you can see the very presence of God, where you can be a person of consequence. In the beginning, the Bible starts. What does God do? He works. God goes to work. He creates. He creates water and grass and trees 
and animals and rivers and brooks and flowers and people, mundane, everyday things alive with his glory, alive with his presence. He made something out of nothing. And so the promise that's implicit in verse 1 and 2, if God doesn't build the house and the city, that is, if you exclude him from what you're doing, you can work morning and night, toil all day, and it can all be vanity. But the converse, the implicit promise is that if you invite God into your very ordinary life, you can have eternal consequence. You can have meaning. You can have a reason to get up in the morning. The most menial things we do, writing an email, changing a diaper, organizing our house, smiling at a neighbor, can be charged with the presence of God. They can be a thin space. Whether you're a CEO of a multinational corporation, or you're a student, or you're flipping burgers, whatever you do, it can be alive with God. You can have a purpose You can see eternity through what you're doing with your hands and your fingers and your brain. And finally, maybe even more importantly, you can stop. You can stop. You can clock out or you can willingly, metaphorically clock out. You can shut your laptop because if you are building with God involved, then you can say, I have done what I need to do. God, would you take this and would you bless it? Would you create something out of it? I entrust it to you. Would you make something through my work that is beautiful just as you did in the very early days as you started this story? And that's really the message of the Bible is that all of life is charged with the presence of God that he is incarnate in this space, in these elements, in you, in your bodies, and in your work, and in your child-rearing. And part of the task is just noticing. It's pausing to look and saying, God, where are you? Would you make this moment, make this thing, make this person beautiful like your son Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we do pray as people who are exceedingly busy and not to despise working hard, not to despise those seasons where children, where work requires more of us than we feel like we can give. Help us to be faithful in those moments, but help us also to set boundaries that we can be healthy. Help us to look for you And maybe even as we leave this morning, look for you in places that we don't expect you to be. As we walk or bike or drive away from this building, give us eyes to see your glory. Give us eyes to see your presence that we observe outside of us and also that we begin to notice inside of us. And let us take that to work tomorrow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.